clearly, tragically, um, Ukraine is generating a lot of a lot of those injuries. Uh, Ukraine will become the subject matter experts in the years uh, ahead, and we'll be learning from them. But in the meantime, uh, it won't surprise you to hear uh, that we're alongside uh, our colleagues in Ukraine uh, to help them do what they have to do uh, to deal with their their healthcare burden uh, relating to. Uh, traumatized people and people specifically who have lost limbs. Welcome to the Veterans in Politics podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Ball, and this week's guest is the Right Honourable Dr. Andrew Murison, MP, the Minister for Defence People and Families at the MOD. Now, if this is your first time with us, thank you. Welcome to the show. Do look back at the back catalogue of some 90 episodes over the last three years with veterans in politics. And if you're one of our loyal followers and fans, a simple thank you from me. Don't forget to hit subscribe and you can also hop over to YouTube where we've got this episode in glorious Technicolor filmed on site at the Ministry of Defence's main building at the heart of our defence in Westminster. Now, Dr. Andrew Murison joined the Royal Navy in the 1980s, serving a regular career as a medical officer. Upon leaving the Royal Navy, shortly after, he then rejoined the reserves, where he still continues to serve today, and has deployed on operations as a reservist to Iraq, and most recently on op rescript during the COVID-19 pandemic. We discuss his role. We also look at things such as Ukraine, the Invictus Games, where I first met the minister, as well as his family. He remarkably has five daughters. I mean, I have one and just about cope, uh, and two of which of his daughters also serve in the armed forces. Remarkable. So thank you, Minister. I hope you enjoy the show. And don't forget, you can support our show by leaving a rating, hitting subscribe, or if you're feeling extra generous this Christmas, you can also become one of our subscribers uh, for the cost of about a cup of coffee a month. Right, let's get to the show. We are in the heart of our defence, our nation's defence here at MOD Main Building, uh, somewhere I used to work once upon a time, and I'm really pleased to say we are with a minister, uh, and that is Dr. Andrew Murison, MP, who is not only a veteran of politics, but also has a reservist background too, and we'll look set to explore that. But I've not seen you since the Invictus Games. Mm. Um, I mean, how was the Invictus Games for you? They were great, weren't they? Yeah, really good, really inspiring. I'm absolutely... Uh, revelatory I think for somebody who's not actually been involved with it before I, I found it absolutely brilliant I think so I mean were there um how was the, did, you, did you find the interaction with the other nations as well because clearly we've got our own community but in terms of the other nations 21 nations in all um how did you find including that including Ukraine Indeed. I think one of the great things was the reception that the Ukrainians had at Invictus which was uh just extraordinary wasn't it I think so. I don't, and I don't think it was unsurprising as well. There, there was definitely love in the room. Yes, there was. Um, but and also the interaction between the individual athletes as well, um, and those from our own Five Eyes community, uh, the Danes as well, are really bonded with, uh, particularly over those shared operational experiences like Afghanistan. I just think it was a unifying purpose. But we were robbed, weren't we, with the wheelchair basketball it's by a bit the too Americans. Soon bit too soon, if I'm honest, to, to talk about that. I've got many friends. Uh, but what a spectacle. Yeah, I think so. I mean, for me, it was it was probably, if I had to choose, probably the event that I thought was most inspiring. But it's a classic, isn't it? It's a classic Invictus uh, sport. 
it is and it's exhausting watching it i have to say i still had a, a cycling event to complete and i had to kind of re- you know make sure the batteries were in check uh, when it came to preparing for that because the excitement of the wheelchair basketball and the and the sitting volleyball as well similar kind of atmosphere um but i'm really pleased that we've been first of all thank you for agreeing because i did um collar you <laughs> invictus and say please come on the podcast and to sit here in mod main building today is an absolute treat uh, and like with all of our guests we like to go back to the, the beginning and talk about our shared military values our shared military story as well and where did it all start for you with your military career well i joined in 1980 originally um, so I joined as a reservist when I was at medical school and I then got a university cadetship with the Navy and uh, when I qualified I went into into the Navy so I was a medical officer in the Navy until um, 2000 when I was selected to be uh, a candidate in the upcoming general election and I transferred back to the reserves I'm still there so I'm in my 43rd year of regular reserve service. 43 years immense so over four decades of service and you're still you're still serving and in terms of that military career in the on the regular side of it what what's been the key differences between sort of the regular versus the reservist and being a member of parliament and a minister at the same time well if i'm honest i probably have more fun as a reservist than i did as a regular so uh, i deployed as a reservist um, recent more recently i i deployed as, as part of operation rescript uh, so i i've done some sort of um interesting things i think i would say uh, whilst i've been uh, been a reservist that i didn't really imagine i would when i left in in 2000 uh, because of course it had been the i suppose tail end of the cold war um so not perhaps as kinetic certainly for me uh, as some of my reserve service has been that's quite an unusual thing as well for a member of parliament. I know of one other, um, Lord uh, Lancaster, who deployed when he was an MP overseas. I think he deployed to Afghanistan during a parliamentary recess. Um, I mean, how how does the mechanics of that work to put your hand up and deploy, uh, albeit for you know, rescript during the COVID-19 pandemic? How, was that an easy thing? Was there a learning process for the, for the MOD? Um, and how was that for you? Well, rescript was re- relatively straightforward because it was here in the UK. Um, but Telic obviously more challenging because uh, it, it wasn't. Um, so in terms of managing the, the day job, uh, that was more difficult than rescript was. And I guess for us that do deploy as a reservist, I put my hand up and deployed in operations a couple of times too. I mean, it's it's great for us as individuals because it's exciting, it's interesting. You feel like you're doing something positive as well. But I think the biggest thing for me, the biggest challenge was family. Um, and of course, I think you've got five daughters. Yeah, I do. I, I've two, got two one. of whom are serving. Two are serving. Remark. So you must you've not put them off then? No, apparently not. <laughs> And and whereabouts are they serving? So I've got one who's captain in the Gunners, and I've got one who's a logistician in the Navy. That's a question I was always asked, actually, about when you serve, would you want your... I mean, my little girl's only three and a half. um, Would I want her to serve? And coming from sort of a a green background, I'd actually probably promote the light blue and dark blue services ahead of my own, um, just because I see particularly some of the culture within the Royal Navy. I know, I know as a minister, you're and obviously of the dark blue variety, you might be biased towards one particular service. Um, but um, we're keen to champion tri-service, of course, in all that we do. But there's just something, some of the people I've met recently, particularly for Invictus, actually, there's something about their character that's quite appealing. And I think that's probably shaped within the, the culture of the, the Royal Navy and the RAF. Um, I mean, how did the cult- 
nature of of the of your service shape you as you look forward uh, to go into when you transition into civilian life and indeed reserve life? Well, I think it's very difficult, but all of us who have served whichever service, I think, probably take with us uh, a lot of valuable stuff. Uh, I'm certainly of the view that um, experience in uniform really does set you up well f- for life. And that, that varies. For some people, it is truly transformative. And for other others of us, perhaps some who've done things before, um, possibly less so. But nevertheless, it does have a big impact. And it gives people life skills, which are, I think, very, very useful uh, in later life. Because we all become civilians again eventually, um, if we're spared. And, and uh, I think um, inevitably what we do in the military uh, helps us along the way, both in our careers and in our life in general. And I think it's quite a comfort as well for the armed forces community, having someone like yourself that has the empathy and the lived experience. You know, you know what it's like to leave your family behind on operations. You know what it's like to you know, put yourself forward for service and in difficult situations. Um, and therefore, when it's you're the decision maker, uh, but not just for yourself or your family, but for us all, in the armed forces community. And I think if we remove the, you know, the party politics of it, I think um, the MOD in recent years has served itself really well as a voice of veterans um, and uh, families and reservists and serving personnel in the manner in which the, those that are actually in those positions, their backgrounds, because we've done quite well, haven't we? I think um, the, the prospects of veterans have changed dramatically since 2010. Uh, we've uh, we put the, the military covenant in, into statute for the first time. Uh, there has been a lot of work on uh, military healthcare issues, uh, veterans' healthcare issues, mental health. I've written papers myself on the subject. I've written a book on the covenant. So there's been a lot of energy, I think, over the past 10 or 15 years uh, around uh, the covenant, what it means, around service families and around veterans, as you say. And I'm, I'm actually rather proud of that. I was going to pick up on a couple of those bits of work that you did. I think it was David Cameron asked you to look at a couple of bits um, around the experience of the amputee population. And having just spent a lot of time with a few amputees with Invictus, um, I mean, I'm, I, I had suffered near limb loss. My limb was saved during my trauma, thank, thanks to the NHS and the amazing staff at um, the University of Hospital of Coventry in Warwickshire. Um, and Mr. David Wallace, who I like to name check every now and again for saving my limb. But I've had a lot of time with amputees. And and as a medical person as well, you had an interest in that from the military communities. How have you seen the advancement, both perhaps in technology and attitudes and the way in which we, we view our amputee community? How's that changed over the last couple of decades? Well, um, I was at Stanford Hall a few days ago, uh, which, of course, is what replaced Headley Court, which many people are familiar with with if they've been for, in for any length of time. Uh, the way we manage amputees and the way we do prosthetics in the armed forces community, I think is, well, it's it's second to none, certainly in, in this country. We, we do it exceptionally well. We've had a lot of experience, sadly, uh, because of uh, Telic and Herrick. Um, and we're seen as being, I think, uh, subject matter experts. Others others, others look to, to the UK for... Um, uh, mentoring uh, for some of our research base uh, so we're seen as, as being good 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 with this and of course that has an impact on those that we have an enduring commitment to it goes back to your observation about ukraine actually because i was really struck we're seeing that conflict and we're seeing you know the technological advances in medical 
in particularly in, in forms of the cat tourniquet, meaning that there's fewer people dying of those kind of blast injuries, but surviving as amputees. And that population we saw within the team Ukraine. Um, and that was really quite striking. So, I mean, um, has your experience of other nations looking to us, would you say that's fair reflection of what you saw with Ukraine? Um, yeah, so c- clearly, tragically, um, Ukraine is generating a lot of a lot of those injuries. Uh, Ukraine will become the subject matter experts in the years uh, ahead, and we'll be learning from them. But in the meantime, uh, it won't surprise you to hear uh, that we're alongside uh, our colleagues in Ukraine uh, to help them do what they have to do uh, to deal with their their healthcare burden uh, relating to. Uh, traumatized people and people specifically who have lost limbs. I guess when you engage with that population, you see it through very, whether it be our own amputee and going to Stamford Hall or, or to Ukraine, um, you see it through various lenses, whether as a, a veteran or reservist or as a parent or a minister or as some a medical professional. Um, how do you kind of bring all of those experiences together um, and differentiate it or do you? I don't think you can. So some, somewhere in your head, the whole lot is computed, I suppose, and, and probably, I hope, uh, some of the things you, you do um, as, a, as a minister uh, is informed by the experiences you've had over time and some of the insights that perhaps you, you have uh, because of your experience uh, over, over a long period of time. So I hope that's the case. Otherwise, it will all have been wasted. Yeah, I think it leads me on to another point, is that some people unfairly point to politicians of being out of touch and having worked for a number of MPs, including Secretary of State for Defence as his agent uh, back in the day. Um, I know that's not the case because first of all, you have surgeries where people's real world experiences are there front and centre in, in front of you, your correspondence. Um, but the lived experience that you've had through service and for your med- medical profession, I think that's an unfair charge. Would you agree? Yes, I think it is. But, of course, the contrary argument is what sells column inches. Um, I suppose I could reflect upon that on Sunday night when I was working through my constituency correspondence, which I normally do until fairly fairly late. Uh, That does give you an insight into uh, the ground truth, uh, which I think is denied to to many others, uh, no question. Uh, And like everybody else uh, in in the House of Commons, I do my advice surgeries and people come see me bend my ear. I go knocking on people's doors and get it from them, uh, sometimes both barrels, uh, in the way that my colleagues do. I engage with by-elections and uh, spend days on end knocking doors and hearing people's issues, concerns and complaints. So I think it's wrong to suggest in this country that elected politicians are out of touch. In other jurisdictions, perhaps where things are a little bit more remote because of the way people are elected, perhaps and not directly accountable to constituents and to particular areas uh, things perhaps that accusation probably could stick uh, but certainly not in the UK yeah we're really lucky aren't we we can walk into our parliament it's a public building and um, we can mix in amongst MPs we can see our MPs I mean I don't know if you've ever tried a member or as a, or a member of the public as or any of our listeners try and contact an American um, politician it's important you can't even do it on Twitter they're all closed down you can't DM them if you want to email them there's no email. You have to go via contact forms and obviously get filtered out because you're not an American. That's actually. exactly right. And they have vast staff. So if you're lucky, you'll, you'll get to speak to a staffer. You certainly won't get to, to talk to the principal. 
unless of course you want to uh, to be a donor when I suspect probably things things are rather different but certainly if you're simply a constituent given the size of constituencies uh, in the House of Representatives and the buffer uh, that the uh, large staff's uh, congressmen have, uh, it's very difficult to have the sort of conversations that I have with my constituents on a daily basis. Yeah, and the staff here, right, your staff hasn't grown exponentially in terms of the volume of casework, particularly from COVID-19, I'm told, as anecdotally, increased. Is that right? Yeah, there's no doubt about that. So I had that conversation with my staff uh, all the time. There's no question of a doubt. In 2001, when I was elected, most of the correspondence was uh, actually handwritten letters, would you believe? Uh, these days, if I get a handwritten letter, um, I- I'm delighted. I mean, it's so refreshing. Uh, uh, electronic communication has meant that uh, there is so much more, so much more than there ever was. Uh, and because people still want to have a, uh, a personal response, uh, that does put quite a lot of pressure on perhaps that's a bit of a top tip if you really want to get in front of your mp write a handwritten letter yeah because it's quite yeah, unusual top tip yeah. um if we can perhaps move on to your ministerial life i mean you've held a number of ministerial roles including now and that role slightly changed um being re rejigged uh, because um for the first time we now have a veterans minister uh, at the office of veterans affairs and sitting in cabinet as well which i think um, everyone agrees is good news um particularly when you view how other nations have progressed with that so Big thumbs up from me, that's for sure. Um, but across all those ministerial roles, I mean, how has how has that changed? Was there a particular favourite time as a minister? Clearly you're going to say MOD. Um, but was there particular highlights or challenges during your, I think you've had about five ministerial roles over time? Yeah. So um, they've all been good. Uh, I've also chaired a significant select committee. That was good Northern too. Northern Ireland, was uh-huh. that right? That's right, in, in quite a challenging uh, time in um, in northern ireland history so that that was a privilege um uh foreign office was great um very much enjoyed uh, being at the northern ireland office uh, as a minister this is my second turn of the wheel within the mod so i was here uh 10 years ago um so it's been interesting coming back Uh uh-huh yeah anything different from last time to this time it's, I mean, it's a great, um, everyone that works in the MOD, I think, um, from my experience, it's very interesting. Yeah. Well, yes, it is. And it's a privilege to work here. Um, uh, things have changed. Actually, the essence of it has not. Um, there are, there's a, the ways of working have changed, uh, far more electronic, um, for example. Um, but the essence of it has not changed greatly. The challenges have changed. Obviously, they have uh, the, the things change rapidly in defense and, and foreign affairs um so um i suppose i suppose the, ca- the canvas uh, looks a bit different but essentially the mechanics of how this place operates not so much yeah and, and the global dynamics in that time i mean we've gone from high intensity operations with afghanistan and iraq can yeah, overlapping um to that ending um, and, and now all eyes looking back almost at the past during you know, familiar territory for yourself, having served during that period of the, the, coming, the closing down of, of the Cold War and that transition to different operations. And then as a reservist being involved in very contemporary operations as well. I guess you've got a really good view about across that multi-spectrum. Um, I mean, I, I, it's a question I often ask people um, in positions uh, as politicians. Um, your view of the past and now, do you think the period of crisis, people use the word crisis, oh, we're in a crisis. And I think sometimes they use it a bit 
too easily um and without kind of a label on it we had the label of the cold war um that was quite you know easily understood um what kind of period of time are we living in at the moment well i don't think it's cuban missile crisis is it um it's unsettling that's for sure and uncertain um there's a lot going on um but the point about defence is, is to manage the situation as, as best it can with it, with its allies. I think what's happened over the past several months is we, we, we've shown that NATO, when it acts together, uh, is strong and resolute. I, I think a few uh, commentators were giving up on that as a form of collective security. Well, following February last year, it's been shown not to be the case that, uh, that uh, as an alliance, uh, we are able uh, to face down our principal uh, aggressor and and that's been quite heartening yeah it has i think and it's been really good to see cross-party actually it's been a consensus uh, because i like to think politics is a, a journey towards consensus yes there are differences but i think defense has been that one area particularly for ukraine where everyone was really put party politics aside in fact and has, has come together in the main in order to put the country first before you know, differences around ideology, which is quite refreshing. Yes, I don't think there's any ideology in this. I think uh, there is cross-party consensus on on the on the aim, which is to support Ukraine facing down uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, Russia in its illegal invasion. Um, and certainly as far as the UK is concerned, uh, we're with Ukraine for as long as it takes. Um, and it's been uh, it's been good that, that the UK has been, I think, probably in the forefront of of that. Yeah, I, I agree. And as we record this, there'll be people on operations globally around the world. This will be going out just before Christmas, and people will be listening to this over Christmas as well. There might be people on operations now listening to this in the far-flung part of the corner of the world, hopefully, because I've got a massive podcast audience, obviously. Um, I mean, what would be your... I mean, I've served overseas at Christmas. I know it's like to be away from family um, and you make the best of it, right? It can be quite good fun, but... It's not the same, is it? It's not the same. Um, I mean, what was your experience of being away at Christmas and how? what's your message for those serving overseas today? Well, just a big thank you. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to, to relay those thanks. Um, it, it's, it's, it's not great, um, but we make the best of it. Um, but of course, you've got to think about families back here in the UK too who will be separated from their loved ones. I just would like to say a big thank you for for, for what you do uh, in, in ensuring that, that we are a force for good in the world, which I sincerely believe what you do is important. And are there any uh, amusing stories from Christmas serv- serving on ship? Or, uh, <laughs> there's lots of food fights that yeah. sometimes happen. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think people just make the best of it, don't they? Wherever wherever we go, that's kind of what we do. Um, but you know, let's not diminish the, the significance of being away for 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 christmas it's 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 not the best um but uh uh, we have to we have to kind of uh do what we do and just be secure in the knowledge that what we're doing is important is uh i was talking to james gray about operation christmas box um those little morale boxes you get through um and how he's been behind that campaign i think he said one in one christmas twenty thousand plus boxes went out um and each one of those boxes is a human life each one of those boxes has a family connected to that as well. And I remember what it was like to get those little morale from strangers as well, 
um, and it's the morale. I mean, people. If anyone has sent those, um, you'll never, you'll perhaps you'll never know who's getting them. Uh, but the impact it has on you overseas when you open that, the morale just goes through the roof. It means so much, and that's what's great about our country. We, the the UK's public t- response to our armed forces is phenomenal. Um, and before we let you go, it'd be really good to understand what you're working on at the moment. Um, we mentioned earlier on about um, clearly you've got a, a military constituency in, you know, in southwest uh, Wiltshire as well, a close link with the armed forces. Um, and we mentioned some of the pieces of work you've done in the past around you know, the amputee population. But in terms of your ministerial role, is there anything particularly um, you've got coming up? Any any, any exciting news for the community? Because your brief covers, you know, uh, serving people, armed forces, families, um, reservists. Um, cadets, uh, recruitment, transition, the Armed Forces Covenant, lots of things. Um, anything exciting you've got coming up o- over the, the short term? Well, I don't think it's any secret that recruitment and retention is an issue. It's not just an issue for the UK. It's an issue for um, all jurisdictions right across the Western world. We cannot get people in sufficient numbers and with the right skills to join defence. And the outflow is 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 challenging as well. Uh, particularly in the current market where there are plen- there's plenty of competition uh, for those people, high-quality people, highly-skilled people. So we have to make sure that defence is attractive to them, to attract them to join and to keep them when they do join. And that's why we commissioned uh, Rick Haythornthwaite from the private sector to come in and see what we're doing right, see what we're doing what wrong, and see if we can incentivise people better that's a massive piece of work that's recently reported and at the moment we're running through all of his recommendations just to make sure our defence offer is the right one and that it's attractive for people and hopefully uh, the UK will be able to recruit sufficient numbers of people with the right skills and hold on to them and we'll be an exemplar for others to follow. So that's main effort. Well, if anyone's interested in that report, I'll put that in the show notes uh, so people can access that. I'm not even going to attempt to say um, it, it, I've all messed it up. It's the Hayforthwaite. Hey Hayforthwaite. There we go. Um, I'm smash that, obviously. Um, uh, and then the last comment. Anyone that's sat, been sat where you are, um, serving or reservist, that's thinking, do you know what? Um, that's an extraordinary career. Um, 43 years of service as well. Um, I Back in my community... Do you know what? I'm going to stand uh, for local government or just get involved in politics. What would be some of your advice looking back across your career? Uh, Well, I would say go for it. Um, Go into it with your eyes open, though. Uh, If you want to be a politician, uh, go and knock some doors, speak to some people because you may not like it. Uh, Get elected as a councillor, I would certainly recommend that, something I never did uh, and uh, very much to my detriment. Um, but yeah, if you if you want to serve community, then uh, then elected politics, although it's got a bad name at the moment, probably, um, I, I think is is a, is a is an honourable and worthwhile thing to do with your life. Minister, thank you very much. We will leave it there. Thank you. Thanks to our guests, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe now. Alternatively, you can support our mission by checking out in the show notes below, where you can rate, donate, or become our mate. Thank you.